Maybe you've heard of Slack, but what is it? Slack is your new HQ. One place for everyone at your company to find answers, share updates, and stay caught up. Slack, where work happens. Get started at slack.com. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer America. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. The trade deal mattered. I know the Chinese government has a history of reneging on all sorts of agreements. But somehow this one feels different. And that's why the market erupted today with the Dow gaining 101 points, S&P climbing 0.71%, NASDAQ falling 0.91%. These were closing level highs. So the question is, why does this stage one trade deal feel so different to me? And I've been a skeptic, you know that. First, unlike every other deal China's made with us, for once we actually have something that the People's Republic needs. Pork. I think people don't understand just how badly this African swine flu epidemic has hit China. Pork is a staple of the Chinese diet. and The country is ill-prepared for this scourge. They've lost more than half of their hogs to this disease in 2019. Unchecked, it could be even worse next year because most of China's livestock lives in something called backyard farms. Contrast that with the United States, where we have factory farming with extreme biosecurity. Neither you nor I can actually visit a farm, a hog farm in America. We're considered to be big bio-risks, so we're not allowed in. Trucks that go in need to be hosed down. It's really like dealing with the Andromeda strain, not meat, because it's airborne. Now, China has enough frozen pork to tide its people over for a while, and they do have some government-run farms with better biosecurity, but not great. Unlike grains or soybeans, the United States is the only country with enough pork production to actually meet China's needs. We've got the upper hand, people. Food cost inflation is a real problem in the PRC. Remember that the Tiananmen Square protests, they started as food riots. You'll hear the so-called experts talk about the Chinese Communist Party as though it's totally unassailable. But skyrocketing food prices are poison, even to authoritarian regimes. Of course, China can drag out its pork purchases, but time is really not on their side. Because other countries' herds are being decimated, too. And they all want our pork. Long story short, they have every reason to follow through this time with the proposed agricultural purchases. Not buying our pork would hurt them a lot more than it hurts us. It'll cause tremendous food inflation. They need our pork more than anything, including our planes. Something to focus on when we hear that Boeing will halt the troubled 737 MAX production in January, as we heard this evening from our own Phil LeBeau. I cannot recommend Boeing stock on this weakness that you're going to see tomorrow morning. There's just too many unknowns for me. Although... Long term, I remain steadfast that Boeing will come through as a great American exporter again. The second reason this trade deal is teeth, there's a harsh enforcement mechanism that wasn't talked about at all, both Sunday or today, not once. Do you know that President Trump agreed to cut the last round of tariffs in half and postpone the ones that were supposed to go into effect over the weekend? But if China doesn't follow through, 
those tariffs will come right back to life in a couple of months. Remember Ronald Reagan's trust but verify attitude toward the Soviet Union? I think this trade deal works the same way. Why are people not talking about how they're going to come right back if the Chinese fool around this time? What else makes the trade deal different? President Trump's tariffs have sparked an exodus of companies moving their manufacturing capacity from China to just about anywhere else. The Chinese want that exodus to stop. So many experts have told us that the tariffs mean nothing to China, that their government can afford to wait us out from here to eternity. How many times have you heard that? But they're focusing on the wrong us. For decades, companies in rich countries like the United States would shut down their domestic factories, ship everything over to machinery to China where it's cheaper to make. Their wages much lower. But now it's the other way around. While a few companies have opened new factories here, eh, it's not that really important. It's less important than the fact that business is going to Vietnam, Taiwan, South Korea, Mexico. Do you know that, that, that Vietnam has dredged a gigantic port to be able to handle all this? And it's working. The longer this exodus goes on, the more that... <coughs> well, what's changed in 15 years other than I'm the only person on air who sneezes? How do the rest of them suppress it? Is there something that they do? I know I couldn't. Since the beginning of the show, I wanted to sneeze. Anyway, the longer this goes on, and you know what? You don't even have to worry, because this is why you, I learned at Goldman, you always carry a pocket handkerchief. The more the Chinese government needs to spend on make-work projects to keep people employed. That's why they were so eager to get the tariffs reduced and stem the bleeding. China is not invincible, despite what the mainstream media says. And I know I'm hard to line on this in the administration, but you know what? Maybe I've done more work. Anyway. Uh, once you get a real trade deal, the positive ripple effects for our stock market are enormous, as you saw today. Now, I want you to think about something. I want you to go in the Wayback Machine to last week. There was this report that Credit Suisse published. It was titled, China iPhone Shipments Decline Meaningfully in November, Looming Tariffs a Risk. Well, of course, that clobbered the stock. Apple's always been very vulnerable to the trade war in theory, if not necessarily in practice. Also, the stock got clobbered. You know, it's the same old, same old, right? But I told you this was a classic example of the kind of stupidity, I mean, kind of ill-informed decision-making that makes people uh, not able to capitalize from the gigantic run that Apple's had. And that's why I urge you to stick with it. You know what my mantra is. Repeat after me. Own Apple, don't trade it. Once again, the people who traded it well, how do they feel today? I know how I would feel. I would feel like, I don't know, the, the Rams. Anyway, sure enough, the phase one trade deal means we've gotten rid of the tariff risk, and that may lead to a resurgence in Chinese phone sales. That's why I, uh, Apple stock caught, caught fire again, rallying 1.7% to an all-time high. It'd probably go up again tomorrow, right, don't you think? And the pin action from Apple, well, you know what? It's such a big company that the pin action is huge. You have exposure. Let's go over Texas Instruments. Have you seen that stock lately? A serious logic. That's what makes the sound better. Oh, remember to Tim Cook. If you can ever make the sound great on these, we would get rid of all those devices. Skyworks Solutions. Corvo. Not Corvo, silly. I don't like to serve their stuff. I like better. NXP Semi. Broadcom, which just reported a terrific quarter last week, but nobody cared. Not to mention Moo Micron, which reports this week. These chip makers were all obvious shorts, if you believe that Credit Suisse, that ill-informed Credit Suisse piece. But they're, they're fabulous, fabulous longs now that the trade war is de-escalating. In fact, the whole semiconductor cohort is catching fire, including AMD, Intel, and my dog, NVIDIA. 
Who else wins? We know some of the retailers have done a great job mitigating the cost of tariffs, right? But others failed spectacularly. And the most lame and pathetic, Kohl's, symbol KISS, <laughs> and Macy's, the big M, uh, which is why their stocks have been roaring since we learned about this deal, because they were pure trade war victims. I didn't say roadkill. See, I've been, become very much of an ambassador of goodwill. Then there are the banks in the financial technology place. If China follows through with its promises, these companies should be able to start operating in the PRC without bogus local joint ventures. Here I'm talking about J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, MasterCard, Visa, PayPal. Oh, and by the way, let me just throw in, because you can write on this thing, Goldman Sachs. Okay. Um, thanks to the strength in these major players, the financial ETFs make everything go up, right? Live by the ETF, die by the ETF. I will give a nod to a less inverted yield curve, but the Chinese are starting to let some of our companies be in China without ridiculous joint venture partners. And you're going to hear about one later. It's a stock that I really like. Okay. Now, then there are the oils. Remember, whenever you think that the global economy could accelerate, Wall Street's knee-jerk reaction is to buy the oils, any oils. The ETFs once again move every one of the oils higher, the good with the bad. I continue to favor the stock of Slumbershade. We always called it slob, 5% yield, and they've got the money to pay it. Now, beyond China, there's another set of winners today, the Cloud Kings. Last week, Adobe reported a fantastic quarter. Nobody seemed to care because of all this trade stuff. But because now that's behind us, well, the buyers came in. And you know what? That's not the, that's not the only thing they were buying. They came in and they bought Splunk, which had such a good quarter. They bought Coupa. We had them on recently. Okay. Service now. Hey, that's Bill McDermott. Didn't we just have him on? You bet we did. Bottom line, it's strange to see the market react so simply to such obvious news like the China deal. But this is a market that thrives on certainty. And certainty is what got we got on Friday evening. I say thrive away. But remember, if we get too overbought and we're getting there, I reserve the right to say take some profits and wait for lower prices. Mushu. I got it this time. <laughs> Mark in Arizona. Mark. Hey, Jimmy. A big booyah from Prescott, Arizona. Yes. What's going on? Uh, a lot, man. Hey, thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. I uh, had a question. Um, this is about a company you've talked about on your show before. Um, you've had the CEO on there, I believe. Right, right. It's uh, International Flavors and Fragrance, uh, IFF. Yes. Well, they're doing this really elaborate, incredibly difficult to understand deal with DuPont, of which uh, Andreas Fibig said on Squawk on the Street in a stock in a move that turned the whole thing upside down. When I asked him whether to do an equity offering, he said simply yes. And uh, that was all she wrote for the stock. So let's wait for the equity offering because that's what you have to do. That's what you had to do last time. That's what you have to do again. You know, why don't we go to Ryan in Michigan, Ryan? Hey, Jim. Happy holidays and blessings to you. Oh, same same to you. Uh, Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, The stock I'm calling about is McDonald's. Uh, Given the recent pullback and termination of their previous CEO, do you think now is a good time to own a position? I think that uh, you will probably want to wait until Wendy's breakfast starts. And then you'll see a lot of competition. There'll be some clown in. I mean, there'll be some analysts who are suboptimal who might downgrade McDonald's. I think it's putting in a bottom. But I do worry about the Wendy's breakfast and some Yahoo analyst who will get McDonald's wrong and suggest to sell, sell, sell it. Sell, sell, sell. Because the analyst is probably 29 years old and making $2.7 million. 
All right, the market thrives on certainty, and we finally got it. On May Buddy tonight, should old acquaintance be forgotten 2020? I'll tell you why the elector could decide whether the market has room to run again next year. Then is Bill.com IPO worth the tab? I'm eyeing the newly minted company to see if it's worth considering. And you may use the ratings to judge some of your portfolio's holdings. But should you judge the stock? You know, I'm sitting down with the CEO of one of my old faves, S&P Global, to find out. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com apps. Does this market have more room to run in 2020? Before I say yes or no, you have to understand that predicting the stock market is a little like predicting the outcome of a football season. You look at the schedule of the games, you make notations about opponents, and then in the back of your mind, you keep thinking of one thing. The game is played with this bizarre oblong ball. It doesn't always do what you expect. And that's how I feel about the stock market in 2020. Sometimes when I'm feeling adrift, I go to the risk experts to figure things out. No, not Wall Street risk experts, insurance risk experts. The insurers who write coverage for all sorts of weird risks out there, the kind of thing you can really it can just upend your life. And these risk experts are telling me the same thing. Take out some Elizabeth Warren insurance. Don't hesitate. And if you don't take the insurance, at least keep an unusually high amount of cash on hand. When I ask the underwriters why they're so afraid of Warren, they just laugh. They tell me she's not a capitalist. She's a powerful redistributionist, a veritable modern-day Robin Hood who will rob the rich to give to the poor. I've got to tell you, I think that's a little histrionic. Warren's not a communist. She's an old-school, New Deal-style Democrat in the mold of FDR or LBJ, which I'm quite used to. She wants to roll back parts of the Reagan Revolution, not seize the means of production. Let's not be ridiculous here. I argued vociferously with one of them, pointing out that Warren already backed off on Medicare for All, one of her signature issues. She still wants a single-payer system in theory, but she says it's not a first-year priority or a second-year priority. It's a third-year priority, which for president often means no priority at all. But the fear of Warren is more about her attitude than any particular policy. When I point out that she may be moderate, more, certainly more moderate than she seems, they look at the way she treated Tim Sloan, the former CEO of Wells Fargo, when he was doing his best to clean up a problem that was really not his own making. They're furious at the way she antagonizes billionaires like Lee Cooperman, who spent fortunes on philanthropy. Why should they all be lumped together? Lurking beneath all their worry, though, there's a belief that somehow Elizabeth Warren is like Lenin. Yeah, Lenin. Like me before the buzz cut. And I used to, I think she, she wants to turn the clock back to the 
50s and 60s, when the wealthy paid more higher taxes and the government was more active in regulating business. They think Warren will simply expropriate, period. End of story. But even if she wanted to, Congress would never let that happen. Why is this bouncing football so important? Because if you want to know where the market's headed next year, you need to have a sense of who could win the 2020 election. People seem to forget that even without a hardcore stock market champion in the White House, we can still do very well. President Obama often seemed indifferent to stocks, but he presided over a terrific market, even if it started from a very low benchmark. Remember, Obama brought in pretty much pretty traditional money men to turn the economy around. When I look at who's running for the Democratic nomination, I think anyone other than Warren or Sanders will be an Obama type who's neutral to stocks at worst. Neutral is a tie, and to switch sports metaphors, a tie goes to the runner. Right now, the runner is the bull. It's easy to do an analysis of where stocks might go under a Joe Biden presidency because I can predict what companies will do under Biden with a decent amount of certainty. That is not the size of a football. He's more like a basketball. But Warren is a wild card, a football. And honestly, it's not even about her. A lot of businesses, business people are just terrified of her. And they're going to view everything she does through an extremely uncharitable lens. So if Warren wins the nomination in general, unless she immediately makes nice with health care, with banks and all sorts of other big businesses, don't bet on it. I think you'll want some cash insurance. Whatever you think of her policies, Wall Street's terrified of Warren. And anything that scares the market is bad news for stock prices, as we saw earlier this year with the healthcare and bank stocks. Bad until proven otherwise. Stick with Kramer. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. But the average is surging to new high after new high. This phenomenal rally has breathed new life into the moribund IPO market. After being inundated with deals earlier this year, the IPO window seemed to close in the fall. Uh, once investors stopped paying up for fast-growing companies with little or no earnings, and the WeWork deal imploded right before it could hit the chute. And that's one reason why I've been able to reward higher, because stocks are no longer being buried under an onslaught of new supply. Remember, supply does not necessarily beget demand in a tepid market. Then last week, the IPO market rose from the grave with not one, not two, but three red-hot tech deals. And I've got to wonder, is this a Lazarus-like miraculous resurrection, or is it more of a Night of the Living Dead situation? In other words, are any of these new issues worth betting on? Consider last week's best performer, one that kind of went under the radar screen because there was so much talk about trade, Bill.com. Yes, it's a cloud-based software company that helps small and medium-sized businesses automate complex back-office financial operations. They basically created kind of an artificial intelligence-powered financial software platform. It makes it much easier for smaller enterprises to create and process invoices, streamline approvals, and make payments, all while syncing up with their accounting system and managing their cash. 
According to Bill.com, their platform, I'm going to quote here, makes paper-based manual transaction processing obsolete. In other words, this is a play on the digitization of small business. As someone who runs a couple of small businesses, I have to tell you, we do everything by paper. This was intriguing because it's getting tiresome to just kind of write things down. I think this is exactly the kind of IPO Wall Street would have devoured if it had come in the first half of the year when there was tremendous appetite for fast-growing cloud plays. On the other hand, if Bill.com has the misfortune of coming public in the fall, well, there would have been very little interest because we've gotten burned out on high flyers. The House of Pain. Lucky for them, December's looking a lot more like the beginning of the year than the dark days of September and October. Wall Street's once again hungry for new cloud names, so hungry that Bill.com had to increase the size of the offering from $8.8 million to $9.8 million. That is pretty amazing. This deal was initially supposed to price between $16 and $18. Then they raised the range to 19 to 21 and it still wasn't enough. Instead, they put the stock price to 22 even with an extra million shares of supply. And that had also not been happening. You know what? It turns out people were right to pay up. Because after debuting at 22 Bill.com immediately spiked up to $37.25 when it opened for trading on Thursday. That was a 69% gain right out of the, the gate. Well, that's pretty good, huh? On Friday, it kept roaring. Climbing just under $39 for cooling off today, sinking more than 6% to close at 36 and change. But that's okay. That's what you want. Little decline. Little decline. Even with today's pullback, Bill.com has run up a little too far too fast for me to recommend at these levels. But after digging the fundamentals, I think it's worth buying into weakness once it comes down to a more reasonable valuation. And it's going to do that. And this is the kind of stock. This is for real. This company's real. Yet while Bill.com still is overheated, the company's got a lot going for it. I think they've got a great niche here. The digitization of small and medium-sized businesses is a powerful secular growth trend that is definitely in early innings, if not in any one. There are 20 million of these small and medium-sized enterprises in the United States alone, and they are not well served by the software industry, which believes in follow, you know, helping out the giant enterprise that we hear talked about all the time. Most small businesses still use manual systems for accounts payable and accounts receivable, billing, mailing, invoices, printing checks, file storage, payroll. By going digital, they can avoid mistakes and save money on labor costs. So why haven't they all made the switch? The problem is that most software companies sell solutions for, cost- for consumers or large enterprises, but they don't have the niche. They rarely have the offering in the middle. The stuff that's designed for the consumer is too simple. The stuff that's designed for big business is too expensive. Plus, there's no real one-stop shop for digitizing the back office of a small business. So they kind of cobble together a bunch of expensive products. They come up with something that works, and that's what I know that uh, small businesses I'm involved in always do. And that's where Build.com comes in. They're the one-stop shop financial software platform that's tailor-made for small and medium-sized enterprises, not big ones. We know this is a terrific concept because the company's taking share and taking names. In the third quarter, Build.com posted an astounding 57% revenue growth. And while that's slower than the 67% number they delivered in the previous year, it's still pretty darn good. Oh, and in terms of earnings... Company only, I hate to use that term when people, companies lose money, but only lost $5.7 million in the latest quarter, meaning they've gotten very close to profitability. They're not quite there yet. But you don't need to worry about the kind of eye-popping losses that often scare people, including me, away from these early-stage cloud names that we had during much of the summer and the fall before things went kerfluey. While Bill.com's margins have generally been trending in the right direction, the company spent a fortune in the most recent quarter, moving further away from profitability. Research and development spending was really, was up 112%. Sales and marketing up 73%. General administrative expenses up 77%. 
Those are all higher than the company's revenue growth. And I know that's not a good sign. But I figure they're spending to reinvigorate the growth rate. And that's good if it works. And I think it's going to work. Now, when we analyze these software as a service or SaaS stocks, I like to look at them through the lens of something called the rule of 40. Please pay close attention to this if you're trying to figure out how to value these stocks. It's not hard. It's arithmetic. But it really helps to do apples versus apples. You add the operating margin to the revenue growth. And if the sum is greater than 40, it tells you the company's the real deal. In the case of Bill.com, when you look at 2019 fiscal year numbers, it's got 67% revenue growth and a negative 9% operating margin, which puts it easily over the threshold. For the latest quarter, though, the operating margin sank to negative 18 and the revenue growth slowed to 57, putting it just under the threshold. I think some of these costs are temporary and it will bounce back. If they don't, then the rule of 40 is going to make me a lot less interested. What else? Bill.com has good bloodlines. The founder and CEO, Rene Lacart, spent years working at Intuit. And that's the financial software powerhouse that we've been recommending forever and reminds me so much of this great company. Then in 1999, he left to form his own uh, payroll service called PayCycle, which he sold to Intuit in 2009. That relationship with Intuit is huge. Bill.com software is integrated with Intuit's incredibly popular QuickBooks platform, which I know we use everywhere. It's such a great, it's really good. How about valuation? After exploding higher right out of the gate, Bill.com is far from cheap. This thing sells for more than 11 times next year's sales, not earnings. However, when you look at cloud stocks with similar growth rates like Coupa, which we like, and a plan which we had on last week, Atlassian, Simple Team, you know, we like them. They're all even more expensive. They're trading at 15 to 18 times sales. It does bother me that they are trading so expensively, and you know that, but they've been winners because they're growing so fast. In short, there's a market for a stock like Bill.com in this environment. Investors are clearly willing to embrace companies with unprofitable growth again, as long as they're not too unprofitable. Although I've got to tell you, Uber up two bucks today was very intriguing because they're getting out of some of those businesses like Uber uh, Eats in India that are losing the money. Here's the thing. The cloud space is incredibly fickle, and we know sentiment can turn against these names pretty much overnight for no specific reason other than that Wall Street suddenly got more excited about the cyclicals. And money managers need to sell something to raise capital because there's not a lot of new money coming in. Most money comes out. Lately, the cloud plays have been rebounding like crazy. And as long as the group stays strong, I think Bill.com can go higher. However, I wouldn't buy it up here. I think you should wait for more of a pullback, wait for the market to turn against this thing in a rotation. We've seen that happen over and over again because at 36 and change, Bill.com is just too pricey for me. If it comes down to 32, then you can pounce. I am so sorry if it keeps going higher, but I have to have some level of discipline on mad money. Bottom line, we're starting to see a bunch of new tech IPOs. And unlike earlier this year, some of these represent pieces, uh, really pieces of high-quality companies. I like Bill.com as a play on the digitization of an underutilized, underserved market of small business. But for the moment, I think it's a little too hot. I let it pull into a more attractive level. And then you know what? You can actually buy it very aggressively. Let's go to Joe in Indiana. Joe. Jim, hi. Thanks to you and your crew. Your crew is fantastic. My crew is amazing, and I love them, and it's one of the reasons why I keep doing this show all these years. What's up? Um, Jim, my stock has been stuck in the 150s and 160s for quite a while. Buy, sell, or hold sales force. Uh, I was going over, I have a writing partner, Matt Horvian, over at the street, and he and I were literally just going over the fact that we think that Salesforce stock is about to break out. My travel trust owns it. I see the strength. I think that uh, that Keith 
uh, Block and, and, and Mark Benioff, and I mentioned them both because they both run the company, are doing a terrific job. Let's go to Ken in Oregon. Ken. Yo, Jimbo. Ken. Uh, my stock is uh, Workday. It's gone down like 30 straight points. I looked at Workday today, and I said to myself, what's happening here with their human capital management? Now, I know that Anil Bushri may not care to hear this, but when I went over Oracle's conference call, and I listened to Safra Katz, and I listened to Larry Ellison, they did make me feel like the competition's gotten very steep in human capital management, which is a very important area for Workday. Uh, I still think that Oracle's undervalued. I know it doesn't have the mojo people like, but I do think that they're doing a lot of things that are very competitive. The IPO market has risen from the grave. And Bill.com just came public, one of the red-hot tech deals that I think is worth getting into. I would like you to wait for a pullback to do some buying, though. Much more bad money yet. It's home to iconic financial market indicators like the S&P 500 and Dow Jones Industrial Average. Could the 60% move higher this year signal good things to come for one of my absolute favorite companies, S&P Global in the New York? I'm going to talk to the CEO. Man, it was billed as the largest consumer digital health IPO in history. But with Livongo's stock down almost 50% since its July IPO, red flag or buying opportunity? You must listen to the CEO. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. As we round out a truly great year for the S&P 500, of more than 27%, I think it's worth pointing out that the company behind the benchmark index, S&P Global, has given you a 60% gain over the same period. Now, S&P Global is mainly a ratings agency. They're one of the big three in the credit rating space, but they also run all the S&P, Dow Jones indices. And by the way, they have a market intelligence division that provides money managers with the data and analytics tools they need to do their jobs. It makes sense that S&P Global will be having a huge year, but this stock has been performing long-term unbelievably, 200% over the past five years. What's the secret to the success? Let's take a closer look with Doug Peterson. He's the president and CEO of S&P Global. To learn more about how his company's doing where it's headed, Mr. Peterson, welcome back to Mad Money. Wow, hey, Doug, Jim. good to see Great you. To see have you. See, you have been Thank doing you. some amazing things. Uh, first, just want to just get the numbers. Last year at this time, very, very tough. Not a lot of issuance. Things have changed quite a bit, haven't they? Yeah, this is an exciting time to be here. The economy has been moving along. In addition, if you think about the AUM's growth, the S&P 500, Dow Jones, the ratings issuance environment, low interest rates, all of these things have been tailwinds at our backs. And one of the most amazing things is how prolific you've been with new indices. They're really in demand. The one I found most fascinating, because we had Robin on last, Robin on last week, 10 million new investors, ESG. You're the leader, aren't you? Well, ESG, environmental, social, and governance, this is a field that people really want to know more about. The investors are looking for new solutions. We've been building ESG products across the entire portfolio. And this year we launched the S&P 500 ESG index. It's, it's up and running, and it had a great start. Now, how do you make the judgments? Because some people feel it's too subjective. Well, we, we base it on facts. It's like everything we do in the company. It's always about transparency and always about fact-based analytics. We added a couple of companies to our portfolio a few years ago. We bought TrueCost, which is the best company when it comes to the E part of ESG. Okay. And we've just announced that we're going to be buying Robico Sam's uh, ESG ratings business. And so we're bringing in the right portfolio, but it's about facts and it's about transparency. You have done some amazing things with this acquisition of Ken Show. And, in condition, and you've also tried to, I think, 
do something that is unbelievable for funds, which is you actually uh, talk about the different you rate the words within a conference call. And, and, and that helps people make a decision. Well, what we did is this, this was something where we took, it was one of our internal teams, their data scientists, they looked at all of the transcripts and started listening to words that are, that, are, that are positive words and negative words. And we built something called TDA, Textual Data Analytics, that listens to earnings calls and then basically gives you a little meter. Is it green? Is it red? Is, there, is, it, is it positive? Is it negative? They, we look at to see how is the language in the prepared remarks versus the Q&A. Does a, does a company prefer to only let the analyst to have positive views ask the questions, or do they let everybody ask questions? Doug, I've been watching and reading these ever since they started. And I read, I read this in your conference call, and I said to myself, holy cow, I'm just, I'm doing it all anecdotally. You're doing it empirically. This is a brilliant service. Yeah, this is something that our team built. They're excited about it, and we've seen really good response from the investment community. Incredible. China, you're moving there, and you're doing, everyone's running from China. You're doing more to understand and make China transparent than any entity on earth. Well, we believe that the Chinese financial markets are going to go through a really dramatic reform. If you think about the aging population, the need for pension system, for institutional investors, they're going to need the analytics to be able to support that, that transition. And we're on the ground floor with a 100% owned rating agency. Amazing. Just, in, just not an influence interfered by the government. You own it 100%. We own 100%. Which is something that we're hoping will happen with this new trade agreement, that others will have that. Well, in fact, that's one of the indicators that I'm watching very closely to see who else is getting licenses right. to either own 51% or 100%. There's a few banks that got there. There's a couple of different asset managers that are starting. We were one of the first ones, but I think that this is really the beginning of an open financial system. Well, that would be something, something great. Uh, debt coming due, gigantic amount, right? And that's good for you. Next five years, there's a very large amount of debt on people's balance sheets, which is going to be maturing. If you go back to the 2011, 12, 13, right. 14, it was seven-year debt, 10-year debt. It's on balance sheets. The interest rate environment is very attractive. Not only are rates very low, spreads are also very tight. Now, uh, some people on Twitter, when I mentioned that you were on, said, ask them about whether, some of the, whether there are people aggregating auto loans and whether that's something he's worried about, given the fact that there's been too many auto loans and not a lot of rigor. Yeah, there is a, the, after the financial crisis at, at our rating agency, we looked at all of the different criteria and practices to ensure that whenever we securitize something like auto loans, that we look to the underlying quality of the loans right. themselves. Do we include loans that were cash-based uh, buyers, et cetera? We've eliminated those kinds of practices from the securitization. And so we're watching this very carefully. It's, it's on our list as one of the areas that we, we're watching very closely. Oh, good, because I know that you can have, your credibility is so high, you could do a lot. Now, another one that you're interested uh, the sulfur cap. You're even looking at things environmental and how important they are. Big sulfur cap, it's going to matter a lot for uh, cruise ships. Yeah, there is a, something called the IMO 2020. It's a change in the rules requiring uh, shipper bunking fuel to reduce the amount of sulfur or put scrubbers on their, on their ships to reduce the amount of sulfur. So we have, through our Platts business, we put in place a, a new assessment that's called the 0.5 sulfur bunker fuel. And so we're out there in the market ensuring that they're going to be ready to uh, change those rules when 2020 rolls around. And you're even doing LNG. 
you're doing work with LNG to be sure where the ratings for that. Yeah, LNG is one of those markets. It's a really critical transition fuel. It's a, right. it's a lower uh, a lower component of carbon compared to fuel oil or or other types of uh, coal things like that. We one of our our great successes was the Japan Korea market, which is right. now the right. LNG price for Asia. It took us about seven years to build that, but incredible. but we're now have it embedded in the workflow in Asia. You're a remarkable man. You've done unbelievable things. Congratulations on Thank all you. the way you've taken a very kind of state organization, and you're really in, in, you're putting rigor on so many industries that didn't have it. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Okay, that's Doug Peterson, President and CEO of S&P Global. It's talk that we've liked literally from when Doug took over. We have money's back after the break. It is time. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski down. Come to the lightning round. Let's start with Matthew Massachusetts. Matthew. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Oh, of course. Uh, hey, I bought Boeing stock at two sixty four in April. Given the good, the positive, and the bad. What can you tell the value of the true stock is? I do think the stock goes probably goes under 300. And the reason I say that is because it's just so hard. It's Boeing. It's not in Boeing's hands. When a company does not have its destiny in its own hands, it becomes at the whims and the slings and the arrows of the market. And the market doesn't like that. So I think it can still go lower. It'll come out of this, though. Bob in Pennsylvania. Bob. Hey, Jim. Fly, eagles, fly. Well, yeah, I hope that uh, Dak is not listening. What's up? Listen, Dexcom. Yeah. Uh, I like what Dexcom's doing to tie with Lily. I think that Dexcom's terrific. Now, we've been liking Dexcom for more than 150 points, and we're not backing away. We think it's terrific. Let's go to Sophia in Florida. Sophia! Hey, huge fans here. This is Brandon, Sophia's father, and she's got a question for you. Sure. Booyah! This is Sophia from Pimmerfans, Florida. Let's talk about the toy Funko Pops FNKO. The small toy with the big head and the big profit. You know, I keep wondering when it's going to move. People hate the stock. It's really unfortunate. I'd suggest that you buy Mattel. But does that kid have horse sense or what? That kid's got horse sense. I need to go to Frank in New York. Frank! Yay, Jimmy, how you doing? Not bad, Frank. Frank from, from Pelham. Hey, I've been reading a lot of good things lately on Lattice Semiconductor. I just want to know your thoughts. I think that Lattice is a winner. I think it's hard to lose right now in semiconductors, but I've always liked Lattice. Actually, been a favorite, even when I was at the hedge, hedge fund. Surprise is still independent. Let's do some buy. Okay, let's go to John in Michigan. John. Hey, John. I mean, <laughs> hey, Craig, booyah, man. I'm sorry about that. Hey, I'm listen, um, I, I'm going to keep it real light there for you. I got a question about BMY stock. Uh, recently, they have a couple of departures, Paul Biondi being one of the main ones. I wanted to know how it's going to affect the stock. It- Bristol uh, Myers? Bristol Myers is what I call an up stock. I think that Dr. Cafario, who has been a frequent guest on Mad Money, lays out a position that could take the stock easily to $70. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. What do we do 
with a handful of high-quality companies that had the misfortune of coming public right before the IPO windows slammed shut in August and September. Take Livongo Health, that's LVGO, which is basically a personal health platform. Those people with chronic illnesses manage their conditions. They use smart devices to monitor your data. They show it to doctors, and they give you advice to live a healthier lifestyle. I think of it as kind of a custom-made digital health coach. Livongo, the business, is growing like a weed, but Livongo, the stock, came public in late July. And after surging to 45 at its highs, darn thing plunged all the way to 15 and changed at the beginning of October. Since then, though, it's made a remarkable comeback, surging to 26 and changed as of today. Helped by the terrific quarter the company reported last month. So has this stock gotten its mojo back? Can it keep boring? Let's check in with Glenn Tolman. He's an old hand in the healthcare business, the founder and executive chairman of Livongo Health. He used to run all scripts to get a better read on his company and where it's headed. Mr. Tolman, welcome back to Mad Money. Good Great. to see you, sir. Good to see you. It's so long. Good to see you. <clears throat> Great to see you Okay, as well, so, Jim. so I read all the documents about Livongo and watched those terrific videos about why Livongo. And the first thing I said was like, why didn't I think of this? Isn't this what the healthcare system has been crying out for? Well, it really is. When you think about healthcare today, it's all about chronic conditions. It's 90% of all the costs are chronic conditions. 90%? 90% of all the costs in healthcare are related to chronic conditions. Do people even know that? Condi- no, they don't. And we are still stuck with an acute care system. Right. So Livongo right. was about how do we empower people with chronic conditions to live better and healthier lives, just like you were saying. And that's what we do. We use connected devices. We use a lot of data science, change people's behavior, and get better results. So now, it's a simple formula. Now, what makes people do the right thing if they weren't doing the right thing after all the things we read about, which tell you what to do? Well, basically, what we've done is we've made it easier to stay healthy. Okay. And, you know, the problem with healthcare is that people have tried to bribe people instead of saying, let's create a valuable service that people actually want to use. Right. And if you think about how the economy has been organized, Google came along and it said, you can get information 24 by 7. Right. Facebook came along and organized, and they organized content. Facebook came along and organized community. 24 by 7, you can find where somebody is, their high school right. buddies or not. And then Amazon came along, 24 by 7, right at your fingertips. You're empowered, you're in charge. So you had content, you had community, you had commerce, and now Livongo is doing it for care. 24 by 7, connected, providing you with the information, putting you back in charge. So what do the companies think about this when they uh, bring you in? Well, companies love it because we do three things that matter. One, their people love it, our members. They really love it. Our net promoter score is in the mid-60s in an industry where zero is good. Second, we're able to actually show outcomes, clinical, sustainable outcomes. We improve their health. And last but not least, and the companies really like this, we save money. So almost $1,900 annually per person with diabetes or other chronic conditions. So now we're thinking about hypertension, right? Uh, which is just a, a, you know, an eat that kills people. And yet people, it is preventable. It is preventable. It's manageable. Manageable. So and right. it's preventable, but it's manageable. So we're dealing with people right. who have it. And the beauty of it is now 20% of our revenues are coming from our other, you know, we started in diabetes. Right. We built trust. We added a few hundred thousand people, and then we branched out because here's an interesting stat. 70% of the people with type 2 diabetes have hypertension. So talk about an easy jump. Okay. Now we go to hypertension. 70% of those folks have a weight management challenge. 
And then you go to behavioral health. So now you've described the platform that makes it easier for companies to make the decision to keep their people healthy. And one of the most forward-looking retailers that really isn't a retailer anymore, it's a healthcare company, CVS, has completely bought into Livongo. Well, the two largest you know, PBMs out there, CVS, and you talked about that, and they have our whole suite. Mm-hmm. They're selling our whole suite. And then recently, just recently, we announced Express, Express Scripts. Scripts. And the beauty there is we're not only in their HC360 program, which is focused on risk, but we're also preferred on their digital formulary. And that means their entire sales force, when they go in, whether it's diabetes, whether it's hypertension, whether it's weight management, they are pushing Livongo. So great distribution across the entire ecosystem. All right, one of the reasons why we loved your uh, IPO when it came public, and we didn't really like a lot of the IPOs through this period, is 20% of the Fortune 500 uh, use you. We were trying to think, unless there was a competitor, we couldn't find. Uh, anyone watching who's a member of the one Fortune 500 that is not, what's the objective? What objection? What do they say is why we shouldn't bring in the Vongo? Well, our biggest competitor is the status quo. Oh, and that is great. people say... Well, we have a program, but their programs aren't working. They should know that. And the great news is if you look across the Fortune 500, we're engaged with probably 80% right now. We're talking to them in one way or another. So, you know, that's where that's one of the areas driving our growth, which is growth in the commercial self-insured employers. But now it's spread. You mentioned the two largest PBMs. Right. Now we have more than 20 large payers. And the large payers are coming to us to say, don't carve this out. Let us resell it for you. Wow. And so, and now we're going into the government. So we signed our, the largest deal in the company's history. 5.3 million federal employees now have Livongo as a covered benefit. And so the percentage of those people who have diabetes, we're helping them. Well, this is just such a great idea. Well, look, I knew you would. You- you the system better than anybody. This is a terrific idea and a great company. That's Glenn Tolman, founder and executive chairman of Livongo. We know, Glenn, history of doing things right. Stick with Kramer. Boeing is our greatest exporter. Yes, and it is a blow that they have to halt the MAX 737 production. But remember, this was pretty much in the cards because it's not up to Boeing. It's up to the regulators, and they're not relenting. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.